This week on Hacker in the Fed, the end of privacy with AI being used to dox people in viral videos. Billions of usernames and passwords are exposed. Nation state hackers are hiding in router firmware updates. We answer listener questions about working with the FBI, setting up a cybersecurity business, and safely using data sent to you by others. Finally, we announce Hacker in the Fed's first contest for Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Hector Monsegar was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks Former ever FBI committed. Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hacker turned FBI informant. Participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. It caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbell, former FBI special agent, working my entire career in cybersecurity, and now founding partner at Naxo. Come check out the work we're doing at naxo.com. Joined as always by my friend and podcast co-host, Hector Monsegur. Hector was a former black hack hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for his many years of hacking under the code name Sabu. Our stories collide in June of 2011 when I arrested Hector and then convinced him to work with me at the FBI. Hector is now a red teamer, researcher, and cybersecurity expert. Hello, Hector. How are you doing? Doing very well, my friends. Doing very well. Looking forward to the weekend. I, I assure you that. Yeah, it's a very odd recording of Hacker in the Fed. I think we mentioned in the last episode because I have some travel coming up. Uh, we're recording early. So uh, the new episode just came out this morning. Already gotten some good emails and feedback on it. There's some posts on LinkedIn about it, which is always great to see. Anytime you guys can share this, the show with uh, your friends on LinkedIn or any social media, that's great to see it going out. So we appreciate that. But yeah, recording a little early on a Thursday this week. I'm totally fine with it. I think we have some really cool stories. We have some good topics here to really discuss. And I, and I know we have some solid questions as well. So I'm looking forward to it. And by the way, before we kind of continue here, we received an email this morning from Jason. I'm not going to put his whole name out there. Just wanted to shout him out, give him a big props for uh, for reaching out and, and just, you know, being part of the uh, part of the squad. So thanks, buddy. Yeah, it was nice. It was nice to hear from him. Uh, he just all he wanted Hector to shout him out. And so we'll do that. We'll do shout outs once in a while. Now, we're not going to go crazy with it. If we get hundreds of them, uh, you know, maybe at the end, we'll just read off a list of names and, uh, oh, yeah. and, and just do it. But but yeah, definitely going to protect your privacy. I know, Jason, you gave us your last name, but uh but going to keep it keep it low key. Uh, what are you doing this weekend? You said you're looking forward to the weekend. Well, that's a that's a great question, Chris. Usually, I, I would like to spend the weekend relaxing uh, with the family, but unfortunately, I do have some work. I have a couple of pen tests I need to complete, so more than likely, I'll be working and I'll try to at least save a day or two for my family. So that's kind of where I'm at. That's good. I am uh, since this is coming out next week. I don't mind telling you this. Uh, I am uh, flying out to Las Vegas for the weekend. Wow! Look um, at you. Yeah, a bunch of all FBI guys. We meet up every every year. Um, we pick like a football weekend and we go out there and just have fun. And um, uh, we sit in that Caesar Sportsbook. We go there and uh, and rent the seats and, and watch the games and just have fun with each other. And we all get, it's getting together once a year. So it's all a bunch of guys, a bunch of FBI agents that used to work together and. Uh, you know, we've all kind of gone in different directions. Some are, some guys are still in the FBI. Some guys are big headquarters, uh, bigwigs now. So, but they come out there and we we have a good time. Very excited about that. Not excited about the travel, but uh, but but once I get there, it'll be fun. You know, imagine imagine the poor sucker that decides to rob uh, <laughs> the casino or bar where you guys are hanging out at, 
and he takes a, le- a look to the left and there's like 20, 30 FBI agents sitting there. It's like, oh, okay. Uh, welcome. <laughs> well, it is funny. Like, um, the, the, you know, the crazy things that happen. Um, not too long ago, this is a crazy story. I was I picked my kids up from school. Um, this was a year or two ago. We were driving past a high, a different high school, and um, my kids were telling me, "Oh, yesterday there was a fight that happened here, and somebody pistol whipped somebody." What? Yeah, outside the high school. I was like, "Oh, that's crazy." Probably then, about maybe two hundred feet in front of us, I see this guy pull a gun out of his uh, out of his waistband and cracks off a round into uh, like a group of kids. What? Uh, yeah, crazy. Yeah, it was crazy. And then so the three guys that were together that pulled the gun and the uh, the guy with the gun, he went running off with these other two guys and all the kids scattered. Um, well, you know, what are the odds that this guy pulls the gun, cracks off a round in front of a former FBI agent? My car is uh, or my truck is a, a stick. So I'm driving stick. I got my gun in my hand in case this kid turns around and wants to shoot me. I got my kid dialing 911. We're on the phone with them uh, following this guy. Um, luckily, the police got him and, uh, and, and arrested him and got the gun off the streets and all that. Um, but That's yeah, really good. It was, it, I mean, somewhat. My wife was a little upset that I would chase down an armed guy who's able to crack off around, uh, you know, uh, with my kids in the car. But I don't know. I just couldn't see him getting away. That, that, that like, cop in me instinct kicked in. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we followed at a distance and, you know, was telling the police where he was and all that sort of stuff. But, but it was a crazy scene. Just, you know, it's funny. You just, you bring it up and like, you know, well, this kid probably would have never thought, uh, <laughs> that there would be an FBI agent or former FBI agent driving by when he does this, this is thing. Yeah. Well, I'm just glad that you, that you guys are safe. Obviously that's, that's my priority. And the, and the second one is in a group of kids, you're going to pop something off like that. Uh, next to a school like come on man supposedly it was for retaliation for the day before when his buddy got pistol whipped so yeah man come on it's you know now he's gonna do a bunch of time he's gonna get blazed because it was next to a school you know he just he just ruined his life in many ways man and it's not it wasn't worth it yeah it seems to be a theme every week telling these kids it's not worth it but uh they'll, they'll listen hopefully hopefully our listeners are, are listening and taking that to advice taking that advice you know so we, uh, we we send that message every single week. But back to the, the Vegas trip. Uh, sorry, it made me think of it. I, I don't want the audience or you to think that it's some sort of debaucherous thing out there. Um, we're normally in bed every night by 9 o'clock. All together? <laughs> no, no. We all have our own rooms. And we drive around in a minivan because there's so many of us. So we get a couple of minivans. Wow, that's so um, cool. Yeah, so so it, it is not your typical guy's weekend. We try to go out there when there's a, um, a game in London, a football game in London, so we can enjoy the football even longer so we're up in uh in the car and heading over to caesar's at uh like five in the morning (laughs) um so we're we're to bed early saturday night so it's not uh i don't want people to think it's this debaucherous uh vegas trip nobody here is thinking that my friends all right all right you know but i I gotta say it does sound fun anyway it sounds like a really cool get together it's always fun to get together with friends you haven't seen for a minute and uh kind of chop it up uh, recently, I linked up with a couple of good friends of mine from way back in the old IRC days, and we created a little group chat, and we kind of been chopping it up. And it feels like, and I may have mentioned this before, but it feels like, you know, like we were talking on IRC uh, 18 years ago, 19 years ago. And you can just jump right back into it. Like, you didn't Right back time. into it. Yeah, that's great. Same humor. Yeah. You know, they're making fun of me. You know, all the good stuff. I hope it's not the same humor as 18 years ago because times have oh, well, changed. It, it, unfortunately, it is. Uh, so it's very cancelable. I have to assure you that. <laughs> so.
So this headline really grabbed my attention. That's why I wanted to make it the number one story. The end of privacy is a Taylor Swift fan TikTok account armed with facial recognition tech. So mm. there is a viral account that is uh, using off-the-shelf facial recognition tech to dox random people on the internet uh, for the amusement of millions of viewers. So uh, the article starts off with laying out a fundamental truth. Privacy is essentially dead in public spaces. Uh, what do you think of that statement? Yeah, especially right now and especially with the technology that is available to folks. You know, it's a shame. It's a shame when whenever we have like a, a major improvement or enhancement of technology, something new and cool comes out. There's always folks that figure out a way to, 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 to make it not so cool. And this story was fantastic. And yes, I, I, I do like the, you know, that that messaging, even though I don't want to be so cynical, but um, I can imagine things would be much more difficult for folks posting content online. So, yeah, so what, what's happening is is the account either picks their target um, or the audience sends in targets that they want to do. Um, it's just random videos. Like uh, if a viral video happens, they'll find somebody in the background of the video uh, and they'll do facial recognition. And then they'll erase the, the person's, you know, personal information, their name, social media, that sort of thing. So really how it works is the, you know, the accounts video shows the process of it going through it, which is kind of interesting. They, they show the behind the scenes, how they do it. They, they, they screenshot the videos of the target, then they crop the images of the face, and then they run those photos through a facial recognition software. And then that software then reveals the person's uh, full name, social media profile, and uh, sometimes their employer, which can be a little bit uh, discerning. How do you feel in general about people just being able to video anybody and anything while in public space? The reality is that, you know, it's, you know, it's not illegal. It's nothing, you know, uh, it's, it, yeah, but how do, you, how do you feel? It? Take the law out of it, man. You know, they, we, a lot sure. of things we deal with, you know, the law hasn't caught up to things. So, I mean, I'll tell you right from my beginning, I, I'm pro for it. So this, this story, that's why it grabbed my attention so much is I, I'm very pro freedoms to do what you want to do in public spaces and do, you know, as long as it's not like, you know, you're not, you know, offending children with, you know, foul language. I'm against that, even though it's not against the law. But, you know, and I'm very pro-technology. I'm pro, you know, this, this you know, things moving forward and using AI for different things and all that. So, and then this mixture of the two, it just, it gives me a creepy feeling. But I'm pro the two things, but when they're combined, it gives me a creepy feeling. Very similar to you. Like, I, I'm definitely uh, pro-technology and, and I'm, I'm for this. I don't think that the moment you step outside, you should uh, expect privacy, right? Even if some 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 person on TikTok is the one doxing you. There's a bunch of cameras outside just pointing at you anyway. So, you know, you have no idea what these folks are doing with that, that content, with that material. So it's just, it just is what it is, right? The expectation of privacy when you're outside is um, probably nil, to be honest with you. So what I don't like about, you know, the, the story in general, and, and big shout out to 404 Media. I'm not sure you noticed. They actually started very recently. There's at least one guy, Joseph Cox. You guys may have seen his stories before. He used to be with Vice. Um, they've been coming out with some really banging stories. And this one, the reason why this one caught my eye is because just the, the lack of empathy on this, right? You know, you have this random person online using technology that's used for for finding folks. Um, and then, you know, it could be a, maybe trying to find a cousin or something, but using that technology to dox random people, post their full names, post their details. Um, I don't find that to be cool at all. You know, I think you said it's creepy or whatever. I don't, I don't really see the point in that. So it's going to make it very difficult for content creators to start um, deploying content or releasing content where they have folks they may not want doxxed um, or may, may forget to edit or whatever it is. 
And I almost feel like there's going to be a point where it's going to get so bad, assuming that more people, more copycats like this guy pop up, that folks, one, don't want to be in front of cameras um, and they may not do cool interviews. I love con- I love those interview contents on the streets. And uh, aside from that, you, you'll, you'll most, you may also have content creators that might start blocking people, right? And that kind of starts to distort the video. So there's, there's, def- there's definitely some cons here. Would you ever do the man in the videos, or do you think you're too recognizable? Like if you're walking through New York City, through the a park, just enjoying your day, and somebody came up to you and started asking you questions, would you do it? Yeah, why not? Well, th- what if this happens to you? What if then it now comes out, ooh, Sabu said this? I'm already doxxed, bro. Everybody, yo, have you seen what people do to my pictures? <laughs> no. You know I don't look at those con- that sort of stuff. I, I, don't, I, don't re- I don't read the, the messages. At this point, I'm totally fine. When I see somebody doing interviews on, on the street and they pick me, I'll, I'll gladly answer whatever questions. Like, it is what it is. Um, if I'm in the mood, of course. It is interesting, you know, people get, you know, a lot of followers from this, the people in the videos. Um, but, you know, what comes along with that, they start getting messages sent to their boss and things like that. Do you know how Pamela Anderson became famous? And for those that don't know, Pamela Anderson was a huge name back in the 90s. Um, I might be dating myself a little bit, but the younger kids, uh, she was a big name, big actress. She was on Baywatch and all that stuff. Um, but she was just sitting at a Canadian football game and the camera found her in the audience. And from there, she became, you know, world famous she was huge wow so you know she had a pretty face and people wanted to know who she were was and she you know made her you know so i i can kind of see from that perspective and when everyone kind of has this desire to be famous or you know a lot of people in this social media world um where they would they wouldn't mind this yeah well i mean it it all depends right and i'm sure that folks that are, are more privacy centric uh, may want to avoid those kind of interviews or may want to avoid being in someone's content, right? So, you know, again, it depends. Maybe we might, we might see folks, you know, kind of running around with like those. Remember when Kanye had the like mask thing? Yeah, yeah. It's somewhat fashionable now to wear a mask. Or, you know, the other thing is to lock down your social media. Um, you know, the way that people get uh, get doxxed here is because they have social media accounts that are open to the public. Um, you know, lock your pictures down to your family and friends and that's it. You know, it kind of helps with your protect your personal information anyways. That's 100% right. It kind of reminds me of like what we talked about, I think, last week on risk appetite, right? It really depends on where you stand and, and what's, the, what's the risk you're willing to take or accept. And based off of that, you know, you kind of maneuver around your, your privacy settings. Um, so I think that's a really good idea. So if you, you definitely are concerned with um, your privacy and you have social media accounts that are public um, and you're concerned about something like this happening to you, yeah, you should definitely look at um, securing your your personal security, absolutely. Yeah, the author reached out to TikTok, and TikTok says that it doesn't uh, it, it doesn't violate their terms of service. But then they they talk to a lawyer, and the lawyer is like, "Well, their terms of services is they're anti doxing, so it really doesn't fit you know the two narratives." So we'll see what happens from it. You know, the the author also says the account appears to be run by a Taylor Swift fan. Uh, many of the doxing videos include Swiss music and include videos of people at the Eras tour, tour right, which is, you know, I, I don't really quite understand how an account can't be a fan of Taylor Swift. From what I saw, what happened last week at the NFL, um, everyone is a Taylor Swift fan. So every account must be a Taylor Swift fan, um, including yours, Hector. Oh, man, I was about to throw it on you. Are you a Taylor Swift fan? Well, you are a Swifty, <laughs> I believe. I've seen you wearing the T-shirts and at the concerts. <laughs> Only once or twice, man. <laughs> Only once or twice. So I've heard though the men's room line at Taylor Swift concerts is uh, is easy. Um, so, but I've never really? been to one. Yeah, there's no one in the men's room. Oh, that sounds like a good idea. Then I think that's my next concert right there. All right. Uh, yeah, the tickets are tough to get. So good luck. 
Well, you know, the, the uh, I would say a fun fact here, uh, now that we're talking about Taylor Swift, one of the best InfoSec Twitter accounts that anyone on, in the audience should follow is Swift on Security. That's like the best account. Um, it's been like a parody account and, and for, for a very long time. And some of the stuff they post are just hilarious. And of course, when you couple it with InfoSec, um, it just makes it more unique. So. The next story is a little bit scarier. Darkbeam leaks billions of email and password combinations. So Darkbeam is a digital risk protection firm, and apparently they left a, a little bit of uh, interface uh, unprotected. Did you read about this one? Yeah, no, this was, this was an interesting article. Um, I did notice that the company in question was purchased recently over the last couple of days. So I'm sure that's uh, that makes things a little bit murky for them on the inside, maybe internally. Or maybe the story itself uh, is the reason why they were sold. But it is it is quite scary when you see that organizations that are within the security industry and they're collecting a bunch of data, a bunch of information, they're aggregating, uh, in this case, breach credentials, right? And then they're uploading these credentials to a public instance and leaving it open, right? Mistakes happen. So I'm not admonishing this organization whatsoever, Okay. But mistakes happen, and I, I hope that moving forward they learn from this. But yes, they did leak a substantial amount of credentials. Some of it is public, and then others are not so public, which is where the problem really lies. Yeah, so it was first identified on September 18th um, that they left uh, 3.8 billion records of uh, of data, of usernames and passwords uh, available. And, and like Hector said, so this is a data security that aggregated uh, all the data from past breaches, um, but some of them was not were non-reported breaches, but it's still username passwords, um, you know, and, and so it's a dangerous situation. So actually the, the CEO of Security Discover, uh, a guy named Bob, was the first one who identified the leak and the company closed the, after, closed the leak as soon as they were informed about the issue. Bob came on and said that such data leaks usually happen due to human error. For example, when an employee forgets to password protect uh, the instance for maintenance. So it's dangerous that this 3.8 billion records were released, but it's not like fresh data that's out there. I mean, there's other data aggregators, right? Yeah, absolutely. So um, if you are a bad actor, one of the things that um, you probably have within your arsenal or within your reach is going to be aggregated um, data sets or aggregated data, right, containing emails and passwords, right? This is nothing new. Um, a, lot of, a lot of threat actors or adversaries um, are trading amongst themselves and building these big databases of credentials. So the reality is that Probably a large number of these credentials are already accessible, either publicly or in the dark web. Um, they've probably been shared amongst groups. The fact that this security company, unless they're, unless they're the ones actually doing the breaches, um, they actually probably uh, they probably acquired some of these credentials from uh, unpublished uh, breaches or maybe from, from uh, I would say, darknet forums, right, or dark web, dark web forums. Yeah, they're, they're certainly not the only security company out there that, that keeps these records because, you know, uh, you know, they, you know, companies sell this data to their clients about, oh, your, you know, your password was used, exposed in this breach or exposed in that breach. So it's not new. But again, like we claim every week and we rant that, you know, companies need to, you know, we spend a lot of time and effort to secure our own data. Then we have to share data with others. Uh, you know, we would hope that these companies secure their this data is as sensitive. But Again, why we change our passwords, uh, why we don't use the same passwords across uh, multiple sites. And to be honest with you, 
uh, MFA, you know, but to be honest with you, Hector, we say it all the time. We got to get rid of passwords. We got to start get moving beyond. Yes. It. You know, That's right. this is a, a, a good example of, you know, another company storing our use our stolen usernames and passwords. Um, you know, if you can move into Fido, we would love to kind of go that direction where, you know, it's, it's a hard setup. But once you get into it and get going, it's much easier to use. Much more secure, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I have a bunch of keys. Um, I'm, I'm happy that more uh, applications and more companies are uh, kind of using pass keys or similar. Um, so, you know, even with a massive breach like this or a massive leak, rather, things are getting harder for these bad actors, right? The one thing I'll tell the audience here is, again, you know, always make sure that, um, you know, you're, you're aware of the risks of reusing passwords or if you have passwords that are, are you know, you haven't changed them in a couple of years, right? That that's not that's not good. Um, and then, of course, you want to make sure you have MFA associated to those accounts. Once you have an understanding as to what the threat is, what the risk is, and how to deal with them and how to mitigate them, then you start to minimize the potential damage, right? If your passwords are never the same and they're unique, distributed among, uh, amongst different accounts. And even if an attacker does get your credential and they try to log in and you get a notification that, hey, someone's trying to log in, uh, do you want to accept or deny? I mean, you, you got to take advantage of that and take a look and always take a look at uh, the notifications when you get them, one. And two, if depending on whether or not it's a, it's, it's a legitimate uh, request or not, um, you want to make sure that you take action, especially, especially if not. So good stuff here. This wasn't even the largest leak of passwords. Do you, do you remember Rock You? Yeah, Rocky was large, man. Do you, do you remember how big, how many passwords were, were leaked in that one? I think maybe three or four billion. It was close, right? It was 8.4 billion. Oof. Wow. Crazy. I know. That's a, that's a lot of passwords out there. That's a lot of hacking, my friends. <laughs> Speaking of hacking, next story is FBI hacker drops stolen Airbus data on 9-11. So in December of 2022, a cyber criminal using the handle USDOD uh, had infiltrated FBI's vetting information sharing network, InfraGuard. We have a rich history of InfraGuard, Hector, you and I. <laughs> yes, uh, indeed. InfraGuard brought us together at one point. Uh, but it's you go back true. to the very first episode to hear about that one. So during that hack, uh, USDOD was selling the contact information for its 80,000 members. Um, the FBI responded by uh, re-verifying InfraGuard members and seizing the criminal the forum that the data was being sold on. But then, now on September 11th, 2023, USDOD resurfaced after a lengthy absence to leak sensitive data from the aerospace giant Airbus. Yeah, that's tough. So, you know, he posted uh, the leaked information on breach forums. It was roughly 3,200 Airbus uh, vendors, including names, address, phone numbers, and email addresses. So, you know, not too crazy sensitive, but, uh, you know, now, you know, these Airbus employees are going to be ripe for phishing attacks. Yeah. And of course, you know, the keyword is vendors, right? So now you may have uh, supply chain issues, especially if whoever accessed this you know, this uh, uh, leak of information starts to target those vendors. So now there's at least 3,200 individuals and or organizations, right? I'm assuming there's multiple uh, folks per organization within that list. So maybe the, the, the number of vendors is much smaller. Uh, but nonetheless, these are all vendors and organizations that probably are going to be targeted if they're not already. And uh, I'm hopeful that these companies were notified, one. And then two, they're taking measures to kind of deal with this breach. 
I think that, you know, you brought up a point. It's not necessarily that, you know, a, a massive breach, right? Like what we've seen in previous hacks. Uh, but still, anything that has to do with supply chain and vendors for contractors or federal contractors, um, especially with airlines, how sensitive airline security is, uh, is definitely problematic. And, you know, you, you need to pay attention to these kind of breaches because it could have a, a much bigger effect uh, down the road. Yeah. So apparently U.S. DOD, and that's the hacker name, not what it stands for. Um, you know, he got into a Turkish Airlines employee and installed the info stealing Trojan Redline, um, got those credentials in a session, stole from them, and then logged in and got all that information. So USDUD also posted that uh, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, and the entire defense contractors, I'm coming for you, then a bad word. Yeah, well, I mean, look, I was there at one point, right? You know, you guys know that I at one point I was targeting federal contractors. I had my own reasons. In this case, he doesn't really supply the reason, right? He's just kind of going after these big targets. Maybe there's the implication he's targeting the military industrial complex or whatever it is he's doing, right? Um, but the reality is, is that, you know, it should be a wake-up call for all organizations that work with the government in some capacity or our supply chain for not only this country, but of course abroad. We have a lot of listeners from different countries. Um, we want to make sure that, uh, you know, these, these organizations are aware, right? and I'm sure they are, but, you know, pay extra attention to these kind of hacks. I know I've said it before. I'm going to put an emphasis on it again. When you have a threat actor, when you have an adversary telling you, hey, you guys are next, um, remember, they may not target Raytheon directly. They may target the companies around Raytheon. And so if you're part of a small business unit and you're supplying Raytheon with chips or contracts or whatever, then more than likely you are the target for this attacker. Keep that in mind. Yeah, apparently uh, the way USDOD allegedly did this was uh, they put uh, a malicious uh, site impersonated popular software and put it in the software to be downloaded. Um, so, you know, just another another understanding or put out there that make sure you know where you're getting your software you know pirated software is not the the idea here do not you know you don't know what's going to be hiding in it um if you think you're getting something for free then you know you're probably downloading some sort of trojan um so so don't do it um just another follow-up to the you know in march 23 uh, the fbi arrested and charged the alleged administrator of the uh, breach forums when usdod leaked this data um, but then in June of 2020, they seized the breach forums, uh, but the domain has now since popped up again. So sort of a whack-a-mole approach um, in cyber, you know, in cyber law enforcement. So that's, that's sometimes that happens if you're, uh, you know, I, it's happened with Silk Road. So I never would have guessed Silk Road 2 would have popped up. Yeah, they always, you know, it's like a whack-a-mole, right? You take down one, one issue or one problem and, you know, four others pop up. Kind of been the rhythm for quite some time, right? Yeah. So... Yeah. So, you know, I think it's going to be that way for a while, um, you know, because un unless these guys start realizing and, and hear the message you're putting out there that it's not worth it, um, someone's just going to take their place because they think they can make a quick buck and they know better. They can get away with it. Yeah. And, you know, I, I would I, I wish uh, the USDOD guy was listening. Right. And I hope that, you know, he understands that. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know what his cause is. I don't know what his reasons are. But if it's not, uh, it doesn't seem like he's, he's engaging a ransomware, at least from not from, we're, from what we're seeing with these leaks, right? You know, if, if that's the case, if you have concerns about, you know, how your government operates or works with federal contractors, there's ways to change that. There's ways to improve that. You know, kind of going this route, you know, you're kind of putting yourself in a really bad place because 
you know, you're attacking U.S. federal contractors and, and the U.S. government has a very large reach. And, and not just that. You got to remember, these contractors are also work for other governments around the world. Some of these may even have some sort of relationships in Eastern Europe. Right. So you, you can't you can't make the assumption that, you know, you're you're free because of where you actually are located. Eventually it's going to catch up. And so my message for, for this person, if they're listening by just by chance, is, um, you know, I think you proved your point. You, you could fall back and, and build your career and have a beautiful life ahead of you. Trust me, prison is not fun. And you're not going to get clout. And nobody's going to give you commissary money. And nobody's going to care. Trust me, when you're in prison and you're locked up with murderers and you're locked up with cartel members and and traffickers and all that, they don't give a... F- I was about to curse. That's how, you know, that's how... Uh, Ooh, calm down. Calm <laughs> oh, down. yeah. No, but they, they don't they don't care, right? They're not going to high-five you when you walk into prison. They're not going to, you know, give you a standing ovation, right? They're going to look at you like you're a nerd. And if you're a nerd with money, then you're in a, in a, in a worse situation. Life is short, and we only get one chance at it, so... Hector, I'm very happy that HelloFresh has been such a great partner with Hacker and the Fed. Fall is back. The kids are in school. Work is busier than ever. My wife and I are trying to find a little extra time for fun things. We're thankful for HelloFresh's support in managing our nightly meals. For a while there, our crazy schedules made it easy for us to fall back into our dinnertime recipe rut. HelloFresh has allowed us to make mealtimes exciting again with over 40 recipes to choose from every week. There's always something delicious to discover with HelloFresh. My wife and I used to dread trying to come up with a meal plan, then having to go to the store and then trying to figure out how to make it. It caused fights. HelloFresh does all the shopping and meal planning for you. Ingredients arrive at your doorstep pre-portioned and ready to cook, along with pictured step-by-step recipe cards. HelloFresh takes the hassle out of mealtime, is cheaper than the grocery store, and 25% less expensive than takeout. I definitely do not miss those daily trips to the grocery store. Go to HelloFresh.com slash 50HATF and use code 50HATF for 50% off plus free shipping. That's 50% off plus free shipping. For this deal, go to HelloFresh.com slash 50HATF and use code 50HATF. Supporting our sponsors really helps support our show. We love HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. People's Republic of China linked cyber actors hide in router firmware. Uh, That's scary. That is very scary. You're controlling routers. You're controlling information. You're controlling Mm -hmm. everything where people go and what sort of things they're doing. You're seeing where they're going on. Tell us a little bit about this one, Hector. Yeah, this was an interesting story. It was multi-agency. Multiple organizations were involved in the advisory. It came out, um, you had the uh, you had the NSA, you had the uh, Department of Justice, uh, you had CISA, you had the FBI, you had the Japanese government and their, and their cyber operations. Like, this is no joke. Like, this was a, a legitimate um, advisory with the sole intent and purpose of letting you know that there are active campaigns targeting organizations that have exposed VPN services, which one do not have do not have MFA enabled, 
and two, probably have weak credentials or can be breached using password stuffing. This is a tie-in to the last story we just gave, okay? Now, these attackers are getting in. Once they're able to log into your VPN service, one of the first things they are going to do is patch your firmware or hot patch, meaning they'll be able to update the firmware on your VPN appliance or device, right? So they'll implement, they'll implant their malicious code to be able to do a myriad of things. Here's the thing that's important for many of you listening. I'm, I'm sure some of you are in your offices right now. You're looking at your router as we speak, okay? Imagine if that router was compromised running custom firmware by uh, a government-funded um, actor. And anything that you have on that router, everything that travels bidirectionally, right, or even internally, is compromised. And um, especially if you have something like a VoIP service or you have like, a, you know, this really cool Cisco phones, right, VoIP phones, all of these technologies, all these capabilities can thus be intercepted and used and abused. So, yes, this is a major advisory. And, it, and I, I would say, Chris, and feel free to, to, to confirm or, or deny, but I would think that a multi-agency advisory like this probably would only happen once they've confirmed and they've probably seen evidence that this is taking place. This is not theoretical, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. They, the, all these organizations would not put their name behind it unless it's been proven. Um, and it, we're seeing this story in mainstream media. So, you know, it's being picked up on, you know, that kind of shows the seriousness of it. And they're, they're trying to get the message out there as much. And, you know, all these agencies getting behind it is what gets it into mainstream media. So, you know, it's a group called uh, Black Tech is their name. But, you, you know, I, I Dragon's Hemorrhoid or whatever name they're, they're calling themselves. You know, <laughs> yeah. that's my, the one I enjoy. Uh, but it looks like they're doing this to... Um, enable them to conceal like uh, their configuration changes and hide commands, um, disable logging when they're cutting their operations. If they already have access into our network, why do they need to then have changed the, the routers? That's a really good question. The, the one thing would be to maintain persistence. All right. So let's assume the bad actor gets into your network. Um, they get into some bad credentials, some default credentials. They have access to your internal network. That's fine. Now, well, that's not fine because now... They can move laterally, right? They can start to identify vulnerabilities. They're essentially at that point doing an internal penetration test. But, and here's the big but, right? If they're able to modify the firmware on the routers and appliances, then they're able to control you know, the story, right? They're able to control and maintain persistence. They may be able to modify and deal with any logs on the network appliance um, or the VPN uh, software. They may also be able to... Um, modify outgoing communications or intercept outgoing communications. They may be, able, may be able to also listen in on incoming communications. They could also sit there and depending on the device, depending on the firmware, depending on their modifications, they could also start to listen for credentials. So imagine a scenario where you identify that your network's breached. You go through your instant response plans, your playbooks. You've done everything right. You brought law enforcement in. You've done your research. You've locked down a bunch of stuff. Overnight, in 24 hours, you've completely patched up and fixed everything that you thought was the problem. And then you find evidence of the breach still a week later or two weeks later. And you're like, what the hell is going on? Right? Now, in your minds, in most, in most CISOs' minds and IT directors, they're like, okay, well, obviously, we have an insider threat at this point. Or one of our employees, um, you know, uh, uh, they just keep getting breached. Very rarely will they actually think, well, maybe it's a network issue. 
But if all the network logs on the devices are being modified, then how are they going to be able to determine that, right? This is why a lot of customers are moving to the cloud or some organizations moving to the cloud. Other organizations are getting software like uh, NDRs. You've heard, you've heard of EDRs, right? Now they have like NDRs or XDRs to deal with network traffic detection and response. Now, the question is, are the modifications that these, this team is using or are doing able to circumvent the capability or detection capability of some of these products? I have no idea yet. We're going to have to see that. Yeah, I think that's a, a up in the air. But I mean, one thing is they're doing is they're they're putting in their own software to disable logging. So I'm going to guess if you have a good NDR, the logs are, are probably going to be checked and 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 you know it's going to pop up there. But who knows? Who knows? This just you know speculation on our point. So they're saying that there's a few things that needs that can be done to do this. Is one is monitoring for suspicious suspicious network activity, and that's what your NDR would do. Um, strengthen security measures on your router, you know, make sure everything's updated to its latest firmware. Don't allow it to, to be going on. Uh, but they also say implementing zero trust model. And I know that you're a big proponent of zero trust. Can you kind of explain to the audience what that is? Yeah. I mean, I love the zero trust model. Zero trust, um, unfortunately, over the last several years have become kind of like a buzzword. You know, people have used it for marketing. Uh, companies have kind of changed what zero trust is. The assumption is that you're already breached, okay? Always assume that you're breached and you want to minimize potential lateral movement. You want to minimize risk. A lot of what Zero Trust does, if it's, if it's handled properly, it's implemented properly, it also depends on the products, right? Um, it'll do a couple of things or several different things. It'll do a continuous verification, verifying that uh, a user should have access to a resource. So if a user requests a certain resource, then it's going to go through a process of verification. And only if you're eligible or you should or you're configured to have access to that resource will you get access to that resource. Um, another major important part of Zero Trust is limiting what they call like the blast radius, the damage. Um, if an attacker breaches an account on VPN and they're able to connect to the local network, uh, can we limit the damage? Can we segment that breached account into its own little island? So segmentation, which we talk about a lot, is extremely important and a major part of the Zero Trust model. Um, then, of course, you also have like the, the automation of, of context and collection, uh, uh, context collection, um, response, um, and then, of course, notification. Okay? Uh, you have some things like monitoring and alerts. Okay? Uh, but really, where we really want to focus on here for Zero Trust is authentication and authorization everywhere. Segmentation to limit the damage. And we want to define a scope or surface that these users could access. So what CISA is saying here when they say, hey, you, know, you should probably consider implementing some sort of Zero Trust model is exactly that. Um, you know, Look at limiting what your users have access to, whether through access controls or through a zero trust networking application or or appliance, which there are plenty by now. Thank God for that. You know, minimize decentralization. So you still have to do governance. You still have to you know do uh, identity management, right? Um, and depending on what solution you go with, you could cover a lot of those different areas in one. So that's what zero trust is, and that's kind of what uh, what CISA, uh, CISA and the NSA is, is trying to tell folks to uh, to look into. Yeah, I've always thought of uh, you know 
zero trust is like kind of like visiting the Pentagon. I, I, some people, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people that haven't visited the Pentagon, but you have a badge and you get into the building and a guy checks your badge and you may have a password with that badge. Uh, and then once you get in, you, you, you know, I, I'm going to walk around, you know, but to get to the next room, you got to show your badge and the guys and you, you're like, I just showed that guy my badge. And he's like, I don't care. I don't know who you are. You need your badge to get past this one. So every time you want to enter a different room, you got to show your badge and give your pin and all that. You have to verify who you are and that you're supposed to be there. I'm, I'm glad you gave the audience that visual, right? Because that's what organizations are trying to do on the tech side. We want to make sure that, okay, yes, you logged into the internal network. Fantastic. You're here. So what is it that you're trying to do now? What is it that you're trying to access right now? You want to access ShareFile? Uh, SharePoint, I mean. You want to access Active Directory, uh, which, which, by the way, is something that antithesis, uh, the opposite of what you would want in a, a zero trust environment. But um, that's besides the point. Um, what is it exactly users trying to access? And if so, you have to, you have to authenticate. And you have to get authorization. You have to have the access controls in place to be able to access that resource. If not, you're denied. So going back to what Chris has kind of stated here, assuming someone was able to get through the front door in the Pentagon and maybe get through another door by chance, um, by absolute luck, once they get to that third door, they're stuck, right? Eventually, there's limits. Eventually, there's there's no way in and no way out because now you're completely stranded in that uh, in your attack path. So, Hector... Next story is that a Russian exploit marketplace offered $20 million for a full chain mobile exploit. They wrote, due to the high demand on the market, we're increasing payouts for top tier mobile exploits uh, in the scope. They want uh, iOS exploits and uh, Android exploits, and they're willing to pay $20 million. Um, they, they followed their message up with, all, as always, the end user is a non-NATO country. Uh, by increasing the premium and provided uh, competitive plans and bonuses for contract work, we encourage the developer team to work with our platform. Uh, reach out to us via email to figure out how to maximize the net profit for your team. Hector, how are people getting $20 million to pay for uh, mobile phone exploits? Well, listen, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm no rocket scientist. Um, trust me, I, I could assure you of that. But you have to look at something here. There's a message. There's something that they posted. As always, the end user is a non-NATO country. I mean, we can only take a wild guess as to where, um, you know, as, as to who the end user might be. Now, assuming that a government is funding this, I don't think that they, they would make this so public. I'm, I'm also willing to wager that um, this is probably an organization that acts as a middleman. And they're looking for, uh, you know, they're looking to pay <laughs> They're looking to pay for exploits that they could use to leverage in much bigger campaigns. Now, your question is very uh, interesting to me because if we look at uh, some of their messaging, I'm willing to wager that some of the money that's being used, if not all, to pay for a $20 million full-chain exploit for iOS um, is probably ransomware victims' money. Really? So criminals now are, have $20 million to spend on a full-chain exploit. Well, there was a casino recently that paid, I don't know, what, $12 million to get their files back? That's true. Maybe that casino is paying for this exploit here. You know, the reality is, is that, remember, you know, as much as people did not like George Bush, what did George Bush always say? You remember, Chris? <laughs> no new taxes? No. <laughs> we do not negotiate with terrorists, you know? Oh, that, that one. That one, yes. yeah. That, that was his famous line, right? <laughs> um, now... Obviously, it depends on context. There's a whole, there's a billion variables, especially when you talk about like 
a, a for-profit corporation. Uh, but remember, folks, when you are paying a ransom off, you're basically propagating, um, you know, these threat actors or their their activities. Uh, you're, you're you're enabling them to continue their operations. So um, so this is an interesting story. You know, these guys. I don't know. I don't know how legitimate these guys are. Uh, but I did see a bunch of tweets kind of linking to them and, and kind of what they're they're offering. Even if this tweet and this company and these guys are fake, let's assume let's assume they are. I know for a fact that there's someone somewhere willing to offer that much money for a full chain exploit. And by the way, for the audience, you guys want context here, a full chain exploit will be this. It'll be a zero-click uh, vulnerability or exploit that'll take advantage of a vulnerability uh, with little to no interaction from the user. Okay, so imagine uh, iOS, you get a message, and the message is blank, and you're like, oh, okay, it's a weird message. You move, you move over your life, but while you're moving over your life, here's the next steps. Local privilege escalation, meaning that the, the exploit is going to target um, that initial vulnerability to get access to your phone, and from your phone, it needs to break out of the sandbox, um, it needs to escalate privileges, and then finally, you know, communicate back with some sort of command and control. That's a full chain. There's multiple steps. It may also require multiple vulnerabilities, which is why, Chris, the numbers are high. 200,000 to 20 mil makes complete sense. What's the return on investment? I mean, do you think, I mean, how are they going to make their money back for this $20 million? Well, imagine that you, uh, you know, now that you know that casinos are paying ransoms, you start to target the CEO's personal cell phones for the top 10 biggest casinos on the entire planet. And um, and then you start to, uh, to, 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 you know, exfiltrate information that could be used against them, assuming that at least one of those top 10 casino owners um, is part of a, a bribery scheme or they're involved in some other stuff that they don't want public. Uh, you know, if, if an attacker has access to their phones, you can already, you can already imagine that, uh, that that can be problematic for that CEO. And then it can lead also into lateral movement. If that CEO's phone de- uh, mobile device has a corporate VPN proxy configuration of this, that, and the other, um, and their credentials involved and certificates involved, then the attacker has access to that as well. And if the attacker has access to the phone, if there's some sort of MFA prompt, they have full control of that as well. So while the the CEO, they were, you know, the theoretical CEO, uh, hypothetical CEO that we're kind of conjuring up here is taking a nap in the middle of the day, a nice little siesta while he's in Spain, um, these attackers could do a full attack on their organization right from his phone as the middleman. Interesting. So the next one is the Twitter user, or sorry, sorry, Elon, that's going to upset him. The X user, uh, VX Underground, uh, posted, uh, well, give a little background on VX Underground. He lists himself as the largest collection of malware source code samples and papers on the internet. He posted, today's McDonald's point of sale system setup and executables were leaked online. Uh, an unidentified threat actor claims to have stolen the executables, installation scripts, etc., by pivoting off McDonald's free Wi-Fi. Um, so interesting stuff here. Um, I, I, you didn't do anything to look at the, any of the source code or anything, did you? No, I left that stuff alone, to be honest with you. I mean, there's nothing there that I could really leverage for research purposes, obviously. You know, I, I, I'm not in those days where I would try to get a free Big Mac right now, you know? <laughs> uh, I'm in a different space. But yeah, no, big shout out to VX Underground. They're really, you know, pretty solid group of folks. Um, they, uh, they've been doing some really good uh, write-ups on their Twitter feed in regards to these kind of attacks and why ransomware groups are, you know, successful. 
It was their X feed. Sorry. I just, again, Elon Elon sends me dirty emails whenever you say Twitter. My bad. My bad, Elon. I mean X. And you know what? I'm cool with X. That's my middle name. It's sort of, yeah. uh, it's, you know, it's an abbreviation for Xavier. You just docked yourself. Oh, my God. Ah, my personal security is <laughs> done. <laughs> it looks like the, you know, the free Wi-Fi at McDonald's. Do you think things are going to change in the future where uh, maybe corporations that don't focus on cybersecurity? Uh, I mean, I would guess, you know, McDonald's franchisee, you know, probably doesn't pay a lot for, you know, cybersecurity. Um, offering free Wi-Fi access because, you know, this is, you know, they... They, they, there's some sort of misconfiguration, some sort of router setup that allowed the Wi-Fi to be connected to the point of sale terminals. Um, so, as a business, what do you get from it? You know, do, are, are people going to McDonald's just because there's Wi-Fi? I'm sure some do. The same way they go into Starbucks to free for the free Wi-Fi and a, you know a cup of coffee, right? Here's the reality, ladies and gentlemen. When you're setting up a corporate network, one of the most important things you're doing, when, especially when you're setting up a free um, captive Wi-Fi experience for your users, um, you're setting up segmentation, okay? Segmentation is literally from the jump, it's configured from the jump for these corporate type of, of wireless access points. Now, what it seems happened here, and I'm going to take a shot in the dark, is either their IT folks misconfigured their wireless access point and made it into a flat network. So the guest-free Wi-Fi was actually their, their internal Wi-Fi. The second possibility is that whoever, whichever vendor set up the POS systems, the point-of-sale systems for McDonald's, had installed the POS systems on that guest Wi-Fi rather than an internal network, okay? Which is segmented and separate from the guest Wi-Fi. Um, either way, the attacker was able to leverage his access, his free access, um, move laterally onto uh, the POS systems, which apparently were running Windows, and uh, were able to extract um, the binaries, tools, uh, you know, backend databases, whatever. Um, and now, you know, essentially any researcher on the planet can start looking through these, through these codes, uh, through these binaries, looking for vulnerabilities, um, and trying to find ways to, to exploit those kiosks in the future. If I'm in a McDonald's franchisee, is it crazy if I have two different lines, one one internet service from one company and a different service from another, to keep those two networks separate, or is that overkill? No, that should that should be your move, right? If you are a franchisee and you're not part of like the the, the big umbrella company, right? I mean, McDonald's is is, a, is, a, is heavy on franchises, right? Yeah, I think most of them are all franchise and owned separately. Yeah, and they might offer recommendations on what to on how to set up your network and how to set up the kiosk and all that, but it's up to you to really set that up. And so I could see how a lot of franchises could be vulnerable to these kind of attacks, especially if they're trying to save a couple of dollars and maybe, you know, the, the, the owner of the franchise lets his son set up the network or whatever, right? Um, you know, mistakes happen. Things happen. We're humans. We're not perfect. So I, I could foresee this being more of an issue. Um, in that case, if you are a franchisee, uh, Chris, and you open up your own McDonald's um, and, you know, you have a back office and that back office uh, controls or has access to the POS systems, more than likely you you're, you would have your own internal segmented network. And then the free guest uh, Wi-Fi or access point uh, could be hosted on like a, a cheap cable internet service that you could get from a local vendor, right? Uh, the point is you want to segment these environments away from each other so you could avoid these kind of issues. Yeah, no, I agree. So I think we have a question today from about air gapping, uh, air gapping networks and that sort of thing. So let's get into it. Listener questions, Hector. Ooh, uh, my favorite part. If you want to reach out to us, reach out to us at questions at hackerinthefed.com 
Hector's favorite part is answering your questions. And the first question is for you, Hector. It comes from Mr. Expert. Uh, so first off, I'm in my late 30s. Now back in the early 2000s, I was going down a pretty dark and shifty path. Uh, I was pretty much infiltrating certain companies allegedly in, in New Zealand under the code name Methos. Uh, and it's with a zero, not, a, not an O. Uh, I ended up getting into cracking games for friends and hacking games. Then I had a pretty big fright with the New Zealand police and stopped cold turkey from using computers for years. I followed my grandfather's profession in the cabinet making industry. While Hector was working with the FBI, did he ever feel conflicted about some of the bad actors he liked at the time? I mean, I think a lot of us from that era started, you know, with games, right? Um, cracking games or cracking shareware or shareware, um, you know, maybe even the wearer scenes. It spawned so many hackers, right? Almost every hacker I know from that era kind of have a similar story. It's either games or wearers, uh, shareware and so on. I'm glad that, you know, you were able to catch yourself and, and pivot away from that lifestyle um, and you, you follow your, grand, your grandfather's footsteps. I would love to see what your cabinets look like, man. So please feel free to send us a picture. Um, obviously, don't dock yourself, but I would love to see your, your work. Big fan of that stuff. To your question. So when I was uh, working with Chris here, did I ever feel conflicted about some of the bad actors that I liked? Well, um, I. that's a difficult one. That's a difficult question because, you know, from what I saw post-arrest, a lot of the people that were so-called my friends, quote-unquote, they were providing information to people like Chris all around the world. Um, the same people that, that hate my guts today and, and speak ill of me are the same people that were talking to the feds or talking to the uh, NCA or talking to the, whatever organization in their home country. It, it, it was easy for me to kind of fall back. I, I always bring up like the, like the Sammy the Bull situation with John Gotti. You know, he was loyal to John Gotti until he heard the recording. Uh, it basically implied that John Gotti was going to whack him. Right. And, you know, at that point, he felt like, well, if you're going to whack me, it might as well, you know, take care of you first. So um, there were some people, though, that I, I realized were good people. OK. And, um, you know, I crossed a very I wouldn't say I crossed any lines, but I was, I was walking a very fine line. Well, obviously, I couldn't tell these people the situation I was in. Because then that would lead to me, you know, losing my my uh, my liberty. But more importantly, I didn't I didn't care about my freedom. I cared more about the girls. And you know, if I would have if I would have screwed that up, I would have lost the girls, and that would have destroyed me. So, if there were people that I liked that I felt they were good people, and I knew that they weren't, you know, um, you know, just complete degenerate hackers or whatever, uh, and there were plenty because they still email me to this day thanking me for for whatever I'm about to say, I would just leave them alone. I would not even talk to them. I would ignore them. Um, I still respected what what the U.S. government asked of me, but in the same token, I still followed the rules, and uh, you know, I I didn't need to talk to people. So, yeah, I think that Hector, I think that was the big misconception of this whole thing that that you and I sat next to each other, and you'd be like, "Oh, look at this guy. This is so and so in in X country. Oh, look at this guy. No, this is him." Hector didn't know who anybody was. All you know, anyone that we arrested uh, from from any of this gave up their identity by talking to, you know, talking too much. They gave up their own identity. 
Uh, Hector didn't know. He didn't keep some sort of log of, of who this was. You know, prior to his arrest, he, he, you know, there was no log of chats or log of what people said. You know, we forced Hector to, you know, communicate on a recorded line. We would then re watch those recordings. And everyone we figured out who they were was from what they said themselves um, in these, uh, you know, conspiratorial talks they were involved in. So, um, you know, it, you know, it wasn't like he was just diamond people out. I don't know, just to, you know, and, and I think what Hector's trying to say is like, in that time, if someone that he knew, you know, wasn't a bad guy and wasn't doing crazy things, you know, if someone hit him up, you just be like, ignore him. He wasn't forced to talk to every person that hit him up because he was getting hit up by hundreds of people every day. No, that was a wild time. And, you know, this, listen, here's what happened with, with like the whole anonymous. I just, I'm glad you asked this question. A lot of people became really radicalized by that time and, and, and the whole concept of anonymous and, the whole low-sec era and everything else in between. There was a lot of chaos going on. And a lot of good folks became radicalized along the way, including journalists, including people that you've probably read some of their books. They were part of it. Believe it or not. I, I you know, you guys always hear me say that I think Chris like saved my life and he gave me, he helped me, you know, he was just doing his job, but it, in a way, he helped, he helped, you know, uh, give me a second chance at life. Indirectly, you know, his investigation also did the same for a lot of people. Because there were a lot of folks that were really caught up in that bullshit, part of my language, um, that they didn't realize it was so radicalized. And my arrest was a reality check for a lot of these people. And some of them emailed me. Some of them sent me messages on LinkedIn like, hey, I'm not going to say too much. You spoke to me before. I spoke to you before. Uh, you ignored me for like three weeks. I gave up and I just I, I became a priest or I, I went into the army or whatever. So, yeah, I hope I answered your question, Mr. Expert. Um and that's that's pretty much that. So, right, Hector, our next listener question is Hamilton from New Jersey. I'm a big fan of the show and love the work you guys are doing. I'm a new cybersecurity student who knows that in the distant future, I'd like to have my own cybersecurity company. I was curious if you guys had any advice on how one could learn more about the business end of cybersecurity, i.e. what to charge for services, how to determine which services to offer, which business expenses are there that are unique to cybersecurity? Um, well, as a, a founding member of Naxo, I can kind of answer this one. I know Hector has his own company too um, and can answer this. Um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, I'll answer your last one, though. a lot of ex business expenses you don't expect. Um, you have to have specialized tools, specialized software. Th those all take licenses. Those are expensive uh, every year. Um, you know, it depends on which tools you want to use. Um, but you know, you kind of get what you pay for. There are a bunch of free tools and there's a lot of good things you can do with the free tools. Um, but some of those free tools don't aggregate your findings very well. Um, they don't put things together and make, you know, reportable because you have to, in cybersecurity, you have to be able to speak to people in a way that if they're not technical, um, you have to translate all the stuff. So if you know if you're constantly um, taking the output from tools and having to spend lots of time doing that, it, it gets timely, and so you're not using your time to the your best efforts of securing networks. Um, determine which services to offer is is what you like to do. Um, you know, maybe early in your career you're doing stuff that you don't like to do, but that's a good way of finding it out of what you like and you don't want to do. Um, what to charge is to go, you know, work at companies, see what the value is. What extra value is your company bringing that's not already being serviced in your area um, and what's going on there? there? There's a lot to think about, but you, you, you're asking the right questions. Um, and those, those answers are experience um, and then determining what you'd like to do. Hector, you got any good advice? 
I completely agree with everything you said, and I'm also very happy for Hamilton. I know he's a new student in cybersecurity, but I love the fact that he's thinking about building his own business. Um, the reality is, is that the cybersecurity industry is still very young, and there's still a ton of opportunities. And it all depends on which path you take. Um, that you know, I almost feel like any path you take will be a success for you. Even if even if it's a moderate success, you're still going to be in the green. You're still going to be able to hire people. You're still going to be able to change lives and offer your services and have a good time doing it. Yes, going back to what Chris said, we start from the start from the last question. There will be business expenses, depending on what exact service you're offering. Any tools associated with that service is going to be required. You're going to have to pay that. There are free tools. There are free alternatives. And if you hire some good developers or you're a developer yourself, uh, you may be able to develop your own tools and save yourself a whole bunch of money. But the reality is, is that if you want to speed up the process, you probably want to be vertically integrated, meaning that you're going to take advantage of the tools that are out there, some are commercial, and um, it's worth just to pay rather than trying to reinvent the wheel, Okay. If I were you, I would definitely take classes on communication because you need to be able to speak to your clients in a way that makes sense. You need to understand and continue with your cybersecurity studies because you need to understand those core concepts. If a client calls you today and says, hey, I need an external black box pen test, you need to know exactly what that means, how to scope it out, and how to, to charge for that. I, believe, I, I agree with Chris. You definitely want to be able to work in different organizations and see what the pricing model looks like. I'm going to tell you right now some hints. Some organizations charge by the hour. Some organizations charge by the project. Okay? If you're going to charge by the hour, there's some variables. It depends on where you're located, um, what kind of companies you're targeting. If it's SMB or enterprise or nonprofit, you have, to, um, you have to consider the fact that maybe where you live, there's a lower cost of living, thus... Um, you know, the companies are probably going to pay less for services, right? And then you need to be able to manage projects. You can hire yourself a nice project coordinator, right? They're very, they're very useful. But in the beginning, at the very least, you're going to be, you're going to be, you're going to be, or you're going to have the need to be able to manage your own projects and customers, okay? So there's a lot to go into this. I think you could do it. So Hamilton, I believe in you. Great advice, Hector. The next question is from Brian. He said he's currently deployed and starting his own business when he gets back. Uh, one of the jobs is a water jet company that runs their own CNC machine. And Brian needs a way for customers to submit the CNC files in a safe way that protects his CNC machine from viruses. So do you have any advice for him for getting information, big data files, uh, into his business that would allow him to be, be comfortable putting those files then into his uh, very valuable uh, software and, and physical CNC machine? Yeah, no, this is, this is a tough one, right, Chris? Because... I would have to assume that he's getting those CSC archives uh, or, or rather like the CAD files um, and, and plans from an external source, his users. If there's an adversary, a threat actor that has put together a, a bad set of CAD files or project files or whatever it is he's accepting, it's possible that he may infect, you know, his CNC machine or the workstation attached to the CNC machine. So the hope is, is that from, from the machine that you're collecting those, those original files from, you want to make sure that you have, you know, a very strong endpoint protection, uh, EDR, even Windows Defender, um, you know, uh, they have a bunch of different licenses and different capabilities uh, with Defender these days. And it's actually pretty decent. 
and then you want to be able to you know kind of allow your your EDR products and uh, and um, uh, malware scanning engines to identify whether or not the archive is legitimate or not. You you may still run into the problem that at some point in the future someone may find um, or they might be able to develop a piece of malware, a binary, something that is undetectable. Okay, that happens quite a lot, quite often. It's not nothing new here. All right, not to scare you. Um, so at that point, you want to do a couple of things. One, you want to make sure that your CNC firmware is updated. Make sure that you are aware of any security advisories from the company. You want to follow security newsletters. There's a whole bunch of great ones, and they they may report if there's a vulnerability for your uh, devices. Um, and finally, you want to look at like uh, CISA because CISA tends to point uh, point out vulnerabilities in um, in hardware systems, uh, SCADA systems, infrastructure systems, you know, so you may, you may get some information on new security vulnerabilities, either from your vendor directly or from third party. Fine. If that happens, make sure your firmware is updated. Make sure your system is updated. And that original system that's interacting with those files, you don't want to be able to execute anything off of that, right? If you're just downloading CAD files or project files from your customers and there's a binary in there, you don't need to execute the binary. Um, and be very mindful of your process. So you have to build out a methodology from the moment they send you those files to your, your USB drive to your workstation, okay? Um, and if you have, have any more questions, you can take it offline and we can kind of brainstorm. But um, yeah, you, 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 know, you will have to face some challenges, but I think you can pull this off. Yeah, another way of protecting themselves is to keep the CNC machine uh, and, the, and the computer attached to it that runs it offline. Don't, don't put it on the network. Uh, use sneaker net, you know, bring those files over with a thumb drive and put them that way. Uh, and then you have a backup of the, the CNC machine. So if it does get infected, um, it can't call out to the internet. It can't do anything bad. And if, if the virus protections on the software, you know, alert, um, you can revert back to the backup um, and, and have that machine up and running. And, and you shouldn't lose you know, much downtime in your business, a couple hours to, to put that backup back on the machine. Uh, Brian also asked about network and air gapping between his personal computers and his uh, work computers. I think we answered that one in the, the McDonald's section. So, uh, so Brian, good luck with uh, your business and uh, get home safely. So our next question is from Gabby, who is a U.S. university student. I, I, Gabby, I was going to protect a little bit of where you're from. Um, she's, I, I'm gonna, this is her words, not mine. Uh, hey, y'all. Uh, I'm Gabby, a new grad uh, currently working in InfoSec. Podcasts like yours really helped me to gain a better understanding of the field as I'm still drinking out of a fire hose. Uh, it, it, does, it does get better, Gabby. Thank you for all your efforts for putting into the podcast, especially by including women. Uh, it makes a difference when you can look up to people you, whom you relate with. So thank you for that, Gabby. Yeah, we've tried to have a, a lot of great guests on. And, uh, some of them are, are women in the cybersecurity space. Um, this is a suggestion for the keywords people may have questions on, aside from having a page on the website with a glossary. Uh, maybe in the show notes, you can have a brief glossary section uh, relevant to the show. If people have more doubts from reading the glossary, uh, then they can go to the website and do their own research. Um, thanks, Gabby. Uh, th thank you again for the awesome podcast. I'm a huge fan. Well, it's great to hear from you, Gabby. Thank you for the input. Uh, we appreciate that. And um, uh, we will look into adding some more um the, the show is quite busy as as is just doing it and getting it together uh because hector and i both have full-time jobs um but as we grow and you guys put the uh the word out there of hacker in the fed and how great we are on social media and we get more and more listeners um yeah we hope to implement something like this 
It's an idea you've been having for a long time. Uh, you and Gabby must think alike. Or wait, Hector, were you Gabby in this? Did you send this email in as Gabby? I do like the name Gabby, so yeah. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, perfect. So the last question, again, isn't a question, but it's from uh, Ian. He writes, uh, first, let me thank you for your answering my question a couple episodes ago. You're welcome, Ian. Uh, I wanted to try to provide a new intro for the show for October. Uh, I actually used ChatGPT to craft part of it using my your current intro and prompting it with things I've learned over the show in the past four months of listening to the show. I hope you like it. So, Hector, uh, yeah. this listener used uh, AI to help us write a new intro, uh, which is terrific because that's the first thing we're going to put out there uh, for Cybersecurity Awareness Month. So welcome, everyone, to Cybersecurity Awareness Month and Hacker in the Fed. What we're going to do is we'd like you to write a new intro for us, and we will pick somebody who wins. Um, to submit this, we'd like you to use LinkedIn, uh, make a post, um, and tag me, tag Hector, tag Hacker in the Fed, and also tag Naxo. Put all four in the tag. Um, when you submit it so we can find it and see it and uh, we will like to uh, the winner will be able to pick their merch whatever item they want off the uh, hacker in the fed merch website um, and they can that that'll be the prize for the winner so but ian's uh, chat gbt offering hector do you want to give it a shot real quick to see, let's do see it, how bro. we like it yeah let's all right do it. one try let's give it one try let's the people will know our, how our reading skills are are right, you ready for this ian here goes Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbell, a former FBI agent, always a cybersecurity junkie, and now a founding partner at Naxo. And I'm Hector Monsegar, the former black hat hacker, a.k.a. Sabu, turned red teamer and cybersecurity expert. Oh, and did I mention I arrested this guy back in 2011? But we've come a long way since then. Right, Hector? Absolutely. From, from facing 125 years in prison to co-hosting a podcast with a guy that put me behind bars. Life is full of surprises, my friend. In this podcast, we break down the latest in cybersecurity news and topics. It's all about fun, banter, and some serious knowledge bombs. And don't forget my favorite part, the listener questions. I liked it. That was good. To be honest, that yeah. was great, Ian. I, I hadn't read it. Uh, that is the first time I actually read through the words. I wanted it to be a little bit of a surprise for myself. Um, and to show what a great reader I am. Um, <laughs> so it's good. So I, I like this. This is uh, Ian, you're in the running. Um, or actually, Ian, because you kicked it off, uh, we'll, we'll send you uh, whatever merch you want. So um, awesome. go on the merch, go on the website, pick something out, and then don't, don't, don't have to buy it on the website. Just shoot me another message uh, from the same email account, uh, and I will link up with you and we will, uh, we'll figure it out. So, Ian, thanks for kicking off. Hacker in the Feds Cybersecurity Awareness Month giveaways. Awesome. Big shout out to Ian. Congratulations, my friend. So, guys, remember, if you want to hit us up, questions at hackerinthefed.com. But if you want to join the show opening contest and win yourself some Hacker in the Fed merchandise, um, write us a new opening, uh, send it over on a LinkedIn message, and, and tag us. Tag me, Hector, Hacker in the Fed, and Naxo. All four have to be tagged uh, in the message in order to be a winner. Yeah, and I would say that if one of you clever folks, you could use uh, ChatGPT or similar to create an intro in the form of like an NPR intro. That'd be fun. 
Oh, yeah. And now you're now you're going to try to win some merchandise, Hector. Oh, you might get another email from Gabby. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So go to hackerinthefed.com to get your Hacker in the Fed merchandise, hoodies, T-shirts, custom orders, and we do have international shipping. Again, hackerinthefed.com. Guys, really supports the show. Again, we're trying to keep the show lasting as long as possible, um, and it's it's not cheap. So uh, we need all the help we can get. So go over there and get your Hacker in the Fed merchandise. Uh, new episode every Thursday. Download, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Hector, I've enjoyed doing this episode. I know it's on a different date, um, different type of day than we normally do. A little earlier in the day also. I appreciate you making the time. Uh, I had fun. Yeah, of course. It's always a pleasure, my friends. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.